Father in heaven, as tonight we begin these meetings by discussing the call that you gave to your people to come and restore, restore Jerusalem and the wall around it that had been broken down after 70 years of captivity. Lord, it seems that we too have been wandering in the wilderness and in some respects we've been in captivity in Babylon. And I just pray that as you are doing a parallel work of restoring the gospel with true worship and restoring the wall of protection around it, that that can begin tonight and here at Amen. Speak to each of our hearts. Speak through me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. A book that should be familiar to most of us. It follows Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Back in August of this, just a few months ago, I began studying the book of Nehemiah. And uh, I just felt impressed that there were some major similarities between the time of Ezra in the time of Nehemiah, and our time today. And so I was really impressed with a statement in Prophets and Kings, um, page 677, that states that the work of reformation and restoration and reform carried on by the returned exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Ezra in Nehemiah presents a picture of a work of spiritual restoration. This that is to be wrought in the closing days of this earth's history. They were the guardians of true worship, the keepers of the holy oracles. Varied were the experiences that came to them as they rebuilt the temple in the wall of Jerusalem. Strong was the opposition that they had to meet, but these men moved forward in unwavering confidence, in humility of spirit, and in firm reliance upon God believing that he would cause his truth to triumph. Prophets and Kings, page 677. The work of revival and reformation did not just happen all at once. As soon as Cyrus had conquered Babylon, after 70 years of captivity, Cyrus is impressed. He was inspired by seeing, probably from the prophet Daniel revealing to him, that there were prophecies written by naming him by name, that he would destroy Babylon, that he would take over the city, and that there had been 70 years of captivity prophesied by Jeremiah the prophet. And so he allowed some of the captives to return. Actually, he allowed any of them to return, and surprisingly, only a few came back. Then a few years later, Ezra was inspired to continue the work of reform. And he inspired particularly the priests and the Levites to go back. And he was really, being a, a, a Levite and of the priestly class himself, he was inspired to initiate true worship. And so he began the work. And it wasn't until almost 70 years later that Nehemiah came along. And Nehemiah continued to bring resources and he inspired the people to then complete the process of protecting the city. 
against enormous um, opposition. And so, as Ezra was a priest and a Levi, he was focused on restoring true worship. He called his people to repentance, especially for repentance of the sin of intermarriage with the heathen that were all around them. Nehemiah was not a Levite. He wasn't of the royal class, um, but he did have influence. He was the king's cupbearer, Artaxerxes, the third king of Persia. And so he used his influence and he had a burden from God to restore the wall in Jerusalem and to strengthen his people and to protect his people. So as we review of the, the work of these men, Ezra in restoring the temple and leading revivals around true worship, and Nehemiah around restoring the wall and calling for repentance and bringing reforms, it led me to think about the work that we are called to do in these last days. There is a parallel work going on in Adventism. We need revival. We need repentance. We need reformation. And God is calling Seventh-day Adventists to enter into this work. It's needed now more than ever. I call that the three R's. It's not reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's revival, repentance, and reformation. And it's never been more needed than it is now. We are called as Seventh-day Adventists to give the very last warning to a dying world. We are called to give the very three angels' messages to the world. And likewise, there is a wall that protects those messages. A wall of protection. We call it the right arm. Medical missionary work. Medical ministry. And so it is the work of Nehemiah in restoring the wall that I primarily want to focus on again tonight. So turn in your Bibles just to the very beginning of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Just read verse 1. The words of Nehemiah. One of my brethren came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and the gates are burned with fire. Continuing with verses five and six. And I said, I prayed, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and your mercy with those you lo- who love those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Nehemiah is entering into intercession for his people. He's confessing their sins, but also the sins of their forefathers, so that they don't have to repeat the same history. Nehemiah had a position of respect in the Persian realm, but no standing with his fellow Jews except for his enthusiasm, his passion, and his fidelity for the cause of God that they could see so clearly that they were willing to join in and follow him. 
and join in in the work of rebuilding the wall. God laid a burden on his heart and he followed that call. Because of his passion, he was able to arouse the nation of his day to rally around the cause of rebuilding the wall. Why rebuild the wall? In his day, some of the Jews from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi had, had returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding towns. Under Ezra's leadership, they had mostly rebuilt the temple. They had restored true worship. However, because they were there with people from all other nations that had been brought in during the captivity, they were there with idolaters, they were there with heathens, they were there with a mixed multitude, the Samaritans. The Samaritans actually claimed to worship the true God, but they didn't follow his commandments. And so they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. The Jews had intermarried with many of these people. They had intermarried with even the Ammonites, those people that God had said to have no contact with. And the children didn't speak Hebrew. Look at uh, what Prophets and Kings, page 673 says. And now, Nehemiah turned the attention to the danger that again threatened Israel from intermarriage in association with idolaters. In those days, he writes, I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod and of Ammon and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and they could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people's. Do we have the same problem today? Do our kids know how to speak a spiritual language? Do we know how to speak a spiritual language? Or are we so immersed in the culture around us that we can't appreciate spiritual things? The Sabbath wasn't being observed in those days. Tithes were being held back. The poor were being so oppressed that they had no hope of ever getting out of debt. No hope of ever getting their own place. And they were being kept down by the elite, the people that still had wealth in that time. And so they had alliances with their enemies of Judaism. They had intermarried, and they were on the very verge of going back to associating with the very people that had led them into idolatry in the first place. There was no way that God's people could be a distinctive people and a separate people. They were oppressed, and they were at risk of losing their identity. And now... Nehemiah arrived on the scene. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. And then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had set camp captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. The Samaritans, the Ammonites, the Moabites did not want to see a wall established. They did not want to see the Jews be able to return back to their identity, their worship services, and their call as a people that were unique in that time. And they did everything they could to oppose it. Nehemiah 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night. 
and a few men with me, I, I told no one what God had put on my heart to do at Jerusalem. And in verse 15, he says, so I went out in, in the middle of the night to the valley and I viewed the wall and then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the officers or others who did the work. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, he says to the people, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. We are living in a very similar time. We need to set our hands on this work. There is a work that God has called us to do. We, as God's people, have been living in a culture that opposes true worship. We live in both a Samaritan world, those who confess allegiance to God but deny the power and don't follow his commandments, but we also live in an Egyptian and a Babylonian world that denies even the existence of God. And so that is becoming more prevalent all the time. God has called Seventh-day Adventists to proclaim the everlasting gospel and to give the final warning message of mercy to the world around us. The three angels' messages declare the everlasting gospel that points humanity at the very end of time back to God as our creator, he who made the heavens and the earth, the Savior, and who calls us to worship him on his holy day, the Sabbath. To accomplish this, God will have a people who keep his commandments and who have the faith of Jesus and who are willing to come apart and be separate from Babylon. God is calling us for that. Solomon White, in Nine Testimonies, page 19, states, In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, the second, and the third angel's messages. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. We should not be distracted by the things around us. This is our calling This is the reason for our existence as a people. This is what God has called us to at this very hour. It continues in the next paragraph, nine testimonies, page 19. The most solemn truths ever entrusted to mortals have been given to us to proclaim to the world. The proclamation of these truths is to be our work. The world is to be warned and God's people are to be true to the trust committed to them. They are not to engage in speculation. Neither are they to enter into business enterprises with unbelievers for this would hinder them in their God-given work. 
If we are in practices that don't allow us to put medical literature in our waiting room because we're unequally yoked, this is the time to consider what we need to do about that. If our partners are holding us back from praying with patients, this is the time to be considering what God is calling us to do about that. I believe we are living during the very fulfillment of this admonition. We, Seventh-day Adventists, have been wandering in the wilderness for four generations, waiting for Jesus to come but refusing to enter into the very work that brings with it the outpouring of the latter rain. We have spurned his spirit by our unbelief. Prophets and Kings, page 675. In their work, Ezra and Nehemiah humbled themselves before God, confessing their sins and the sins of their people and entreating pardon as if they themselves were the offenders. They were interceding for their people their people. Patiently they toiled and prayed and suffered. This is the work that God is calling us to enter into. The writer of Hebrews says, speaking of ancient Israel, that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And we have been the same way. The result has been the carcasses of our spiritual forefathers that have been strewn in the wilderness behind us. While God is still waiting and waiting and waiting patiently for a believing generation that will finally enter in. And God will have that generation. And I believe it is our calling to be that generation. It has never been his plan that time should drag on so long. The time of the end is now. We are living in the time of the end. And it's not because the world's falling apart, although it is. It's not because of Protestantism and Catholicism bridging the gulf, even though it is right before our eyes. It's not because there's been so many earthquakes, fires, floods, and natural disasters and hurricanes, although they've been increasing. It's not even because there's been pestilence sweeping our land that we are living in the very last days. It's because God is doing something amongst his people. And God will not move forward. The winds of strife will not be let go until he has a people that will stand up and proclaim the three angels' messages because he will not allow those things to happen unless the earth and the world around us is warned. And I am sensing that God is wanting to pour out his his spirit And there are many faithful Seventh-day Adventists that I've encountered all around the world that are actually doing the work of preparation. Just about two or three weeks ago at our annual council of the General Conference, I was just so encouraged by Elder Wilson and Pastor Finley encouraging the church to prepare their hearts to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They read a letter by Ellen White that encourages us to do a heart work. Our board looked at that this afternoon. You can find it on the General Conference website under uh, Annual Council. And they are calling on every delegate to the next General Conference session to begin praying that God will do something different than he's ever done before. Pour out his spirit on this church. It will not come without earnest prayer. 
It will not come without humbling our hearts. It will not come without a work that we do. But that work is going on. God is preparing faithful people. And I believe that we are in the very final years of this earth's history. Things are different in our church. But we are healthcare workers, physicians and dentists, medical students and dental students, nurses, optometrists, psychologists, physical therapists, any kind of person that's working. Is there something more that we are to do? Let's look at eight testimonies, page 77. The medical missionary work is to be the work of the church as the right arm is to the body. The third angel goes forth proclaiming the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The medical missionary work is the gospel in practice. Medical missionary work is, can we say, the three angels' messages in a practical way? That's what she's implying. All lines of work are to be harmoniously blended in giving the invitation, come, for all things are now ready. Eighth Testimonies, page 77. Yes, there is a work for medical ministry to occur. The medical ministry is to be so connected to the proclamation of the three angels' messages as what? As our right arm is attached to our body. It's intricate. It's important. What do we do with our right arm? Unless you're a lefty, you open doors. You do all kinds of things with it. You do surgery as a physician or as a dentist with the right arm. The right arm is very important. Can we get along without it? Yes, but we're very impaired. So I believe that is the very reason why God has raised up amen in these last days. Here in the United States and all around the world, God is doing something. We haven't orchestrated any of these other chapters popping up around the world. God has inspired them, and God is on the move. And so for the next few minutes that we have together, I want to study why the right arm, why medical ministry work is like the wall in Nehemiah's day. What is it about medical missionary work, medical ministry that protects the gospel? How does the right arm protect the Seventh-day Adventist church and protect its mission as we give the three angels' messages? And what can we learn from Nehemiah building the wall in his day that we can apply to our time? So, this is CD 73. Just slipped my mind what CD is. Consuls on Diets and Foods, 73. When properly conducted, the health work is an entering wedge, making a way for other truths to reach the heart. When the third angel's message is received in its fullness, health reform will be given its place in the councils of the conference. In the work of the church, in the home, at the table, and in all the household arrangements, then the right arm will do what? It will serve in 
protect. Do you see the parallel between the wall of Nehemiah and what the right arm medical missionary work can do for us as Seventh-day Adventists? The right arm will serve and it will protect the body. Testimonies for the church, page, uh, or, or Testimonies for the Church, volume 6, page 327. It states that while the health work has its place in the promulgation of the third angel's message, its advocates must not in any way strive to make it take the place of the message. Sometimes we've been guilty in entering into only the health work. The health work without the gospel is also useless. So what if I give my patients an extra 5, 7, 10, or 14 years of life if I haven't connected them to Jesus as the who wants to give them eternal life? It's useless. Just prolonging the misery. So what can we understand about Nehemiah's time that will help us restore true worship and rebuild the wall? Well, Ellen White has already stated that medical missionary work is the gospel in action. It's practical. Recently, I've come to realize that this is important for every aspect of my medical practice. You know, I used to, um, I'm a heart doctor. I see patients that have had a heart attack. The vast majority of them have smoked. They're obese. They haven't taken care of themselves. And I used to tell my patients, you know, you really should stop smoking. They know they should stop smoking. What they don't have is the power to overcome smoking. They don't have the power to make changes. And so if I just say, hey, look, John, if you would just muster more willpower and overcome smoking... I'm actually asking John to become a legalist, to rely on his own strength and his own power, which is absolutely useless to overcome smoking. But if I connect my patient, if I tell her, look, Jesus wants to set you free from smoking. Jesus has already given you the victory. Jesus is going to give you the strength to overcome smoking. Would it be okay if I prayed with you and asked him to do that in your life? Since I've adopted this approach, the patients that have overcome smoking has gone from about 10% to over 70%. And I believe we need to incorporate this into every aspect of what we do as physicians, as dentists, as healthcare workers. Tap them into the source of power to make change in their life. This is what Jesus is called for. This is what the word sozo means, to heal body, mind, and spirit. The parable of the ten lepers that Jesus healed, that he told to go present themselves to the priests. How many of the lepers experienced sozo? Real healing. Of the 10 lepers that were cleansed from leprosy, how many? One. Only one returned to give thanks and to give glory to God for the deliverance. One was set free, not just from leprosy, but from the spiritual bondage that he was in. And he returned to give thanks to God. And he was a Samaritan. And so... Like in Nehemiah's day, how will rebuilding the right arm, the wall of protection, serve and protect 
the body? How does it serve and protect the three angels' messages today? So I think there's actually many benefits. Number one on my list is that it indemnifies us. It actually gives us protection. What does that word mean? Well, it gives us awareness and publicity with the media and the public. It's kind of like a free pass. Even if something negative is, is occurring, billboards saying that the Pope is the Antichrist or something that gets the attention out there that isn't always presented in the very best way, when we are engaged in medical missionary work, the media pick up on that. The press is a little bit more careful with us. They see that we are concerned about people and that we're presented in a better light. Well, number two, doing medical missionary work gives us credibility. If I take care of my patient's diabetes or their heart disease or whatever it is and I do a good job, they're going to be more likely to listen to me about other things. And so it does the next thing. It actually shows the gospel in action. Number three, I will never forget an experience that I had in San Antonio during the very first Pathways at the last general conference session. It had been a long day. It was getting toward the end of the day. I was taking care of a patient who had high blood pressure, and he just uh, stopped and said, who are you guys? Are you guys, like, uh, sponsored from the government? Are you getting a government grant? Um, You probably had this experience, those of you who have volunteered. And just said, no, we're a Seventh-day Adventist. Do you know what a Seventh-day Adventist is? No, I don't know what they are. Well, um, we're Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, We believe the Bible, and we believe that Jesus has called us to take care of the less fortunate and to take care of the needs of those around us. And uh, he said, so you're not paid to do this? No, there are thousands of volunteers all giving their time to do this. You're not sponsored by the government? No. He literally jumped off the table and said, I can't believe this. Nobody does this. I want to be a member of your church. He hadn't had a Bible study. He didn't even know what Seventh-day Adventists were or what we believed, but he saw the gospel in action, and he wanted to be a part. That is the power of medical missionary work. That's the power of medical ministry, and we are called to engage in that every day with every patient. What else does it do? Well, number four, it actually engages our church members. It gets our youth involved. It energizes our churches so that they're actually doing something beneficial in the community, and it then opens the door for evangelism. Number five, one of my favorites, It will allow us to work even when it will become hard for every other line of work to occur. We all know this quote taken from Evangelism, page 523. We as physicians and dentists and healthcare workers love this quote. What does it say? I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines but medical missionary work. Watch out, Pastor Finley. (laughs) Medical missionary work. The work of a minister is to minister, 
but our ministers are to work on the gospel plan of ministering. What's the gospel plan? There was no design that physicians should do medicine and pastors should do the gospel. The two are to be blended, completely integrated, so that Pastor Finley can do medical evangelism and I, as a physician, can do gospel ministry. That's what blended means. That's what we are called to do. So even after we can't buy or sell, I believe we'll have a short period of time in which we can still do medical ministry. And it will open the door to many, many hearts. So the next one, number six, is it opens doors. The right arm turns the doorknob. It opens doors. It gets us into places that a pastor or a call porter couldn't get. Better than that, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company in my town who flies on a private jet, who lives in a gated community, who will never be sitting but next to me no matter what class on the airline I'm in because he's jetting all over the world, comes to my office. The chief of two fire departments and five police departments come to my office. The guy from the homeless shelter that I don't want to go to the other side of town comes to my office. We have access to people of all walks of life. It's a sacred calling to be part of medical ministry. We, by using the right arm, have access to people's hearts. It opens the door. When churches engage in medical ministry, it opens the door to bring people to the church in a way that they don't feel threatened and challenged. And when they have a good experience and they make friends and they get invited to come back for a spiritual meeting, they're much more likely to do it. It's just, uh, it was an amazing thing that a, a, a lady named Carolyn, who was Greek Orthodox, actually had a cardiac arrest in my office. She was dissecting her aorta. And how we got her back just long enough to get her to the hospital and get the dissection treated is beyond me. It was a miracle. I couldn't pray. I prayed over her because she was unresponsive. I prayed with her sister um, in our waiting room. And she was able to get there and, and get that. Later on, she came back to the office. She was so appreciative I uh, gave her information about coming to a CHIP program at our church. And we have an amazing church that does engage in medical ministry work. Every quarter, we're either doing Diabetes Undone or CHIP or the Full Plate Diet, but there's something that I can always plug my patients into at our church. And we have church members who take this on as their ministry to go sit with her at her, at the, her table. And then, after she had done that, and made friends, much to her sister's and her family's dismay, she came to evangelistic meetings, and then she was baptized. And she died uh, just a few months ago, but uh, it was an amazing experience to see that, and I believe that that is just a foretaste of what's to come. Well, another interesting thing about medical ministry is that it's actually self-funding. Maybe not all of you guys at every institution thinks that, but, but done rightly, it pays for itself. 
In fact, done rightly, it could pay for other things as well. And so this is an amazing opportunity that we have. We need to resist the idea that medical ministry can only occur at a self-supporting institution. God wants medical ministry to be done at every institution that calls its name Adventist. From Loma Linda to your dental office to your psychology office to my medical practice, every one of these places is called to engage in medical ministry. Ellen White in Medical Ministry, page 327, puts it this way. Every facility for the advancement of God's cause is to be put into use. How many? Not just our self-supporting institutions, not just our schools, but every facility for the advancement of God's cause is to be put into use. That his will may be done on earth as it is done in heaven. We cannot afford to be irreligious and indifferent now, We must take advantage of the means that the Lord has placed in our hands for the carrying forward of medical missionary work. Through this work, infidels will be converted. Through through the wonderful restorations taking place in our sanitariums, souls will be led to look to Christ as the great healer of soul and body. That's Medical Ministry, page 327. Evangelism, page 522 states, God did not design that the medical missionary work should eclipse the work of the third angel's message. This isn't to overshadow that work. The arm is not to become the body. The third angel's message is the gospel message for these last days. And in no case is it to be overshadowed by other interests and made to appear in unessential consideration. When in our institutions anything is placed above the three angels' messages, the gospel is not there, the great leading power. So the caution is, is that we don't make our medical institutions purely medical and forget the primary calling that we have to give the gospel, the three angels' messages. When we engage in medical ministry, just like in Nehemiah's time, we can expect that there's going to be opposition. But this is a consecrated work. This is a blessed work. God is going to see this work through. In Nehemiah's day, there was opposition from the Samaritans. There was opposition from the Ammonites and the Moabites. But there was also opposition within. It was the Jews that were intermarrying with the heathen. It was the Jews that were forming alliances with the heathen. Some of them, one of them was allowed to have a residence in the very temple of God that had been dedicated to the tithe and to the offerings. And so one of the works that Ezra and Nehemiah did immediately was to proclaim that this is a work that only God's people can do. Ezra verse four, chapter 4, verse 3, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. The work of restoring the right arm is not a work that Dr. Esselstein can do. Forks over knives does not do this work. 
Dr. Ornish doesn't do this work. It's not just about talking about a plant-based diet. That's not what we're called to do. It's to give the gospel combined with medical ministry. Medical ministry, page 237. I wish to speak about the relation existing between the medical missionary work and the gospel ministry. It has been presented to me that every department of the work is to be united in one great whole. The work of God is to prepare a people to stand before the Son of Man at his coming. And this work should be a unit. The work that is to fit a people to stand firm in the last great day must not be a divided work. Are we sometimes divided as a people? We have to keep our focus on what is the main thing. Prophets and Kings, page 644. The opposition and discouragement that the builders in Nehemiah's day met from open enemies and pretended friends is typical of the experience that those today will have who work for God. Christians are tried not only by the anger, contempt, and cruelty of enemies, but by the indolence, inconsistency, lukewarmness, and treachery of avowed friends and helpers. Derision and reproach are hurled at them, and the same enemy that leads to contempt at a favorable opportunity uses more cruel and violent measures. We can expect opposition. There's going to be opposition from without, but even worse, there's going to be opposition from within. We aren't primarily called to make the world vegan. We aren't primarily called to help them live an extra seven to ten years. We aren't primarily called to do a humanitarian work. We're not primarily called to care for the poor or the homeless. Our amen-free clinics are primarily about restoring the gospel. As we give blind, a sight to the blind, and as we restore a healthy smile, we need to be sharing Christ. We need to be sharing the three angels' messages. We are called to engage in a primarily spiritual work with each and every patient we see. In our offices, at our clinics, at our free clinic outreaches, it's important for us to make sure we take the time to give the gospel. Then, as we do that, we are rebuilding the wall. Back to uh, Prophets and Kings, page 673, speaking of Nehemiah. The success attending Nehemiah's efforts shows what prayer, faith, and wise energetic action will accomplish. Nehemiah was not a priest. He was not a prophet. He made no pretension to high title. He was a reformer raised up for an important time. It was his aim to set his people right with God. Inspired with a great purpose, he bent every energy of his being to its accomplishment. High, unbending integrity marked his efforts. As he came into contact with evil and opposition to right, he took so 
determined a stand that the people were roused to labor with fresh zeal and courage. They could not but recognize his loyalty, his patriotism, and his deep love for God. In seeing this, they were willing to follow where he led. Tonight's message could be entitled, The Power of One Man or The Power of One Woman. One person can change the course of our church. One person can change the course of our church at home. One, church, one person can change our world. But to do that, we must keep our focus on our calling. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are called to give the three angels messages to the world, and that includes us as healthcare workers. It's not heal and let the pastor preach the gospel. This is a blended work. As we are learning to do medical missionary work, we can easily get sidetracked. We can get discouraged. We, as we are learning to do this, we must keep our focus on the main thing that we're called to do. This world is coming to a swift end. We aren't likely to turn the tide of things that are happening in our world. We're not likely to solve the problem of world hunger, human trafficking, probably aren't going to solve the abortion issue this side of heaven. Every one of these things is worthwhile, and there are many Seventh-day Adventists who make this their primary interest. We have to recognize that while we can all have personal preferences for different things, we're not called primarily to solve the problem of social justice. We're not here to solve the problem of poverty. We have to be careful that we don't get divided over good issues. We could get divided over ordination, we have. We can get divided over LGBT issues, we have. We could get divided over COVID, we have. But let's recognize that if we let those things take our focus and distract us from what we're being called for, we are not making the main thing the main thing. And that's what we need to focus on. So this weekend, as we come together, apart from our busy practices, away from home, away from the home churches, I want us to ask ourselves a question. What takes my focus away from Christ? Am I primarily engaged in giving the three angels' messages to those around me? At work, what do I talk to my colleagues about? Do I talk to my coworkers about politics? About the latest sports events? About the economy? Or do I spend more time talking about Jesus and the three angels' messages? This is a time to come apart while there is still day. To reset to prioritize our lives, and to reconfirm our commitment. What is most important right now at the close of this world's history? We want to focus on restoring and rebuilding the wall, along with the gospel, the three angels' messages, with the healthy right arm. Let's forget about the latest conspiracy theory. Our 
Yes, our religious and civil rights are being eroded all around us, but we know that's going to happen. It's not a surprise. That's going to happen at the close of time. So let's focus our efforts and double down on restoring worship and restoring the wall of protection. This is the time to redouble our efforts and to focus on the main thing. Don't let ourselves get distracted. Don't get pulled off on the fringe issues that we're probably not going to completely resolve. So I encourage each of us as we meet in person for the very first time in two years, when we get alone in our rooms tonight, ask ourselves the question, where has my focus been these past two years? We don't want anything to divide us. We can't afford to let anything divide us. Not COVID, not politics, not racial issues, not world peace. Let's just keep our focus on the true thing that God wants to restore. God wants to restore the gospel that leads to true worship of him, to true Sabbath keeping. And let's be about giving the three angels' messages to a dying world. Let's not lose our focus. Prophets and Kings, page 659. At the time, or as the time of the end draws near, Satan's temptations will be brought to bear with greater power upon God's workers. He will employ human agents to mock and revile those who build the wall. But should the builders come down to meet the attacks of their foes? This would but retard the work. They should endeavor to defeat the purposes of their adversaries, but they should not allow anything to call them from their work. Truth is stronger than error, and right will prevail over wrong. We need not be discouraged as God is on the move. This is the final generation. I believe there cannot be another generation. It has to be ended. We must respond. And Prophets and Kings goes on and bids great discouragement. Nehemiah made God his trust, his sure defense, and he who was the support of his servant then has been the dependence of his people in every age. In every crisis, his people may confidently declare, if God be for us, who can be against us? However craftily the plots of Satan and his agents may be laid, God can detect them and bring them to naught all their counsels. The response of faith today will be the response made by Nehemiah. Our God shall fight for us. Our, for God is in the work, and no man can prevent its ultimate success. Prophets and Kings, page 645. And then another quote, In the work of reform to be carried forward today, there is a need of men, Men and women like Ezra and Nehemiah will not palliate or excuse sin. They won't shrink from vindicating the honor of God. Those upon whom rests the burden of this work will not hold their peace when wrong is done. Neither will they cover evil with a cloak of false charity. They will remember that God is no respecter of persons and that severity to a few may prove mercy to many. They will remember also that in the one who rebukes evil, the Spirit of Christ should ever be revealed. 
Finally, as Isaiah chapter 61 and Isaiah 58 states, God is going to have a people. They shall build. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And in chapter 58, it says, Those who from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Prophets and Kings, page 678. In the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. The breach in the law of God, the breach at the time of the Sabbath when it was changed by man is to be repaired. God's remnant people standing before the world as reformers are to show that the law of God and the foundation of, is enduring, of enduring reform that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is to stand as a memorial of creation, a constant reminder of the power of God. In clear and distinct lines, they are to present the necessity of obedience to all the precepts of the Decalogue. Constrained by the love of Christ, they are to cooperate with him in building their waste places. They are the repairers of the breach, restorers of a path to dwell in. My challenge for each of us tonight as we go back to our rooms is to ask ourselves, will we engage in this work of rebuilding the wall while it is still day? Let's just, uh, if, 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 that's the, if that's what your heart says, that you want to be a part of restoring the wall, I would invite you to stand as we consecrate our lives and commit to building the wall. Well, Father in heaven, I am reminded that Jesus said to his disciples to go out and heal the sick, but also to preach that the kingdom of God is at hand. And Lord, I believe we are living in such a time that that is being fulfilled, that you are calling for this generation to be the repairs of the breach, the rebuilders of the waste places. And so, Father, we want to be a part of entering that work of restoring the wall of protection that the right arm of the gospel, the right arm of the three angels' messages provide. Let each of us in our practices, in our work, in our calling as health practitioners see our role as being health evangelists, giving the message, the final warning and the message of the good news that Jesus is the Savior of the world to everyone that we meet. Thank you that you have called us for just such a time as this. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org